This week on Personally Speaking, our guest is Court of Appeals Judge Amal Tapur. He is uh, on the appeals court, one of the highest courts in our country, and he's written a powerful new book, an insightful new book, about who Clarence Thomas is. It's called The People's Justice. Please stay with us. Hello and welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and Judge Amal Tapar joins me now. Judge Tapar is a judge, United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He grew up in Toledo, Ohio, the son of Indian immigrants, and graduated from Boston College and the University of California, Berkeley Law School. Before becoming an appeals court judge, he served as a federal prosecutor and a trial judge. Judge Tapar regularly teaches at Notre Dame University, the University of Virginia, and Vanderbilt. He has written a new book about Clarence Thomas called The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him, which reveals the true character and judicial conduct of Justice Clarence Thomas. Judge Thapar and his wife, Kim, have three children and live in northern Kentucky. He's here with us today to talk about his book, which examines the rulings that best exemplify what Justice Clarence Thomas really stands for. Joining me now... I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking Court of Appeals Judge and author, Judge Amal Tapur. Judge, to begin with, before I introduce the book, I want to do it right. Amal Tapar? Yeah, uh, Amal Tapar. Yep. Okay. And I, I need to ask you about a couple of things. First of all, I was surprised um, through the miracle of Wikipedia to find out that you have this beautiful uh, Indian American name. And then in the middle of it all comes Raja. Where did you get the Raja name from? My dad's name's Raj, so oh, okay. uh, I think it was originally Raj and then became Roger. That's great. Yeah. I love it. It's a touch of Americana right in the middle of the name. Which That's is right. Crazy. And then yep. I'm also a convert, which you probably know. I did hear that. Is that before or after Boston College? After Boston College. Okay. So the Jesuits didn't drive you away from the faith. Quite the opposite, no. right? <laughs> no, yeah, no. Father McGowan at Boston College was wonderful, great influence on my life. He actually married my wife and I, uh, and I wasn't Catholic then. Okay. Yeah, my, it was my, a long process. My nephew went there, and he was um, madly in love with the uh, homilies of Father Michael Himes. Would he have been there in your time? Oh, yeah. 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 He said the chapel would be packed with kids who were very touched by Father Himes' ability to communicate. I need to ask you, too, we're talking about the people's justice, this book you've written. Uh, I, you know, in my, my dealings over the years uh, with especially justices on high courts, um, they're very, very careful, understandably. Writing a book about one of the more controversial justices of the Supreme Court, it just seems to me to be a, a level of high risk. I wondered how you came to say, you know, I have an important job to fulfill as a, a, on the Court of Appeals, but I want to talk about this man's life and his meaning. And I'll take the risk of the popularity that may not come to me because I'm defending him. What went into your process of thinking about taking the risk, which many, many judges do not, of, of talking about Justice Thomas? I just thought it was important that people learn the true stories and what really comes before him and understand, get a true understanding 
of what he's doing. They may still disagree or agree, but I just thought it was critical. Uh, he's an originalist. I'm an originalist. I wanted people to understand that originalism isn't for just the rich or just the poor. It's it's actually a theory of law that benefits everyone ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that message is out there, especially for lay people. You know, I'm thinking, especially in light of the decision that just came out today, I'm sure that uh, Justice Thomas is going to get beaten up royally for the uh, uh, challenge to affirmative action. But I mention that because I wonder how he handles and how you handle the inevitable criticism that comes from taking a stand. Uh, we had last week uh, Senator Josh Hawley, and I'd read some reviews about his book on manhood, and I was just shocked that it wasn't people disagreeing with his ideas. They were virulently against him as a person because he'd written what he wrote. How do you handle criticism from your knowledge of Justice Thomas? How much does it impact on him when people disagree, not necessarily with the ideas, but with the person themselves? I think when smart people disagree, we both take it seriously when people have, and they do sometimes, valid criticisms of the way we approach things. I Mm -hmm. think it's important that you take them seriously, but they usually do it in a manner that isn't disagreeable. And that's how you know it's real and valid and something you should pay attention to. You may still end up disagreeing with them, but people do have valid criticisms from time to time. And I think we both take those seriously, but we never take it personally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because it's what you prioritize in life. We pride, I think Justice Thomas and I both have similar priorities in that it's faith, family, country in that order. And so if you feel like your oath is to the original meaning of the Constitution and your obligation is to interpret the document consistent with the meaning of the terms, Mm -hmm. then we're fulfilling our oath by doing that. And that is our responsibility. And so they gave us lifetime tenure for a reason. We need to be big boys and girls and be willing to take the criticism that comes with it. And I think the criticism can be healthy and it can be unhealthy, but Mm. we have to remember that there is honest disagreement in this country. And that's one of the great things of the, about the country. I just, uh, come from taping the mass, which goes out online and I talked on July 4th about why I love, uh, justice Scalia. And one of the things I love most about him was his defense of flag burning. Not that you weren't an idiot for burning the flag, but that that's the greatness of America, the ability to express ourselves and to disagree respectfully as well. Um, one of the things you touch on in the people's justice, and I love it very much is the story you tell of uh, of him stopping in the street to have a chat with obviously a friend who was also homeless. But I was troubled by the fact that I found that story in your book. And that's not generally in articles about Justice Thomas what anyone would highlight. The humanity of the man, the kindness of the man, the compassion of the man. Why is it in fairness that most major media will not show the human side of Justice Clarence Thomas? Yeah, I don't know their motive, but I think that's the one of the most important things about the book. It's whence, why he got the name for me, uh, the people's justice, mm-hmm. is because of those stories, the humanity of not only the man, but his jurisprudence. People will often paint his jurisprudence as inhumane. But when you read the real stories of the cases, which is what's included in this book, I hope, mm-hmm. um, and it's well-sourced and documented, but right. I think when you read the real stories you'll have a different view, which is why I tell everyone I know when they ask me about the book and if they're Clarence Thomas fans, they get the book and they read the book. I say, I love that you're getting the ammunition to explain to your friends, but you know what you can do that's better than that? Give the book 
to mm-hmm. someone who's your friend who happens to be a critic. Let them read it and then say, let's have an honest discussion. Read that book and tell me, did you walk away with a different view of Clarence Thomas? Is it different than people tell you? And I think that's what will happen and will change people's mind one person at a time, one heart at a time, even if they don't. Look, there's going to be things they disagree with in this book. That's perfectly fine. But are they going to have a better appreciation and understanding of the man? I think they will. I mentioned to uh, Justice Scalia, he came to our Nassau County bar a few years back and uh, they asked me to do opening remarks. And I asked him to stand in the middle of the room. There were 300 lawyers and to extend our hand in blessing over him. And God bless his sense of humor at the end. When he got up to make remarks, he said, uh, Monsignor Jim, uh, when I go out through country, usually when people lift up their arm around me, it's not to give me a blessing. And he, he certainly was able to laugh at the criticism and not take it too personally. I mentioned that, too, because I wonder how you personally deal with not just a disagreement, but um, when you, for instance, were a prosecutor, I have to believe that you came up against people who strongly disliked you for what you did. Were you ever in the role of being prosecutor or judge afraid? No, I've never been afraid. I mean, obviously there's threats, we get threats and things, Mm. but I think at the end of the day, I, I just I've tried not to pay attention to that. There's not a lot I can do about it. And I've tried to focus on my responsibilities and not let any of that impact the way I do things. And I think it's really important that we don't as judges. And I, for example, I sit on an amazing court with a, just great colleagues and some of them disagree with me from time to time. In fact, some disagree more, maybe more than from time to time, but we're never disagreeable. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing culture in our court that I wish the American people could see the inside of more often, mm-hmm. because I really do think I love some of the people who think differently than me. They're like brothers and sisters to me. And at the end of the day, we maintain a healthy friendship, even though we come at the law from different perspectives. And that's why I don't like the criticism of any of the justices. I don't like the criticism mm-hmm. of any of my colleagues, even if I disagree with them. I see firsthand they're just trying to get it right. Well, Judge, for the people who uh, don't have a full understanding, which the book will help them to understand of what it means to be an originalist, uh, I've been the chaplain for 30 years of the Colombian Lawyers Association, Italian-American lawyers. And and one of the people said to me just today when I mentioned you were going to be on, but, you know, we are 350 million incredibly diverse Americans now and the Constitution may not apply. Why isn't it treated as a more living document that adjusts to the times? What would you say to that guy? Yeah. Um, so can I tell you a story of sure. when I got nominated to the Sixth Circuit? I like telling the story because it kind of signifies it. When I got nominated to the Sixth Circuit, my neighbor saw in the paper that I was an originalist and he came running down. He said, you're one of those crazy originalists. Why are you an originalist? And I said to him, Mike, you're a businessman, right? And he said, yes. And I said, so you sign contracts, correct? Yes. What do the contracts reflect? He said, well, it's the meeting of our minds. It's the agreement. And you put that agreement in words, right? Yes, I do. So as a judge, should I tell you what's best for you? Should I adapt your contract to the present day? Or should I interpret it as you understood it at the time you signed it? He said, of course, you should interpret it as I understood it and the person I signed it with. At the time I signed it, I said, you're an originalist too now. (laughs) And 
the point is, is when we have a written constitution that has to mean something, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply to present day circumstances. Mm. And you can use those terms. The terms apply to today's circumstances. We figure out what they mean by figuring out what they meant at the time. Now, let's say the Constitution doesn't apply. Well, that's the beauty of originalism is originalists believe at their core that the American people, not nine elected judges, are the source of the law that governs us through the Constitution and the laws they pass. Remember, people say, well, if you decide it's not in the Constitution, a right to whatever, just mm. pick your right, um, then we don't have that right. Well, that's wrong because, A, you can go to your neighbor. See, this will encourage more civic involvement. If the courts stay out of the way, people can go to their neighbor. They can get a law passed. They can get it locally passed. They can get it statewide passed or they can get it federally passed. Imagine Title VII. That's not in the Constitution prohibits discrimination. In fact, they just had a 9-0 case on undue hardship for businesses in accommodating religion. And the point being is that the American people can pass laws locally, federally, statewide, and we stay out of the way. We let the American people adapt to the times versus you living in my America. And so what happens when judges supplant their views for the written word is we turn a republic into a monarchy mm -hmm. run by judges. I see. I see it very clearly. And I, I think your examples, the cases that you use in explaining the point of view of Judge Thomas make that very clear about what originalism truly is. Um, I, one of the greatest judgments you've made uh, wasn't on the bench, but was in the choice. Uh, the woman you dedicate the book to, Kim, your wife. Every weekend when I do weddings, Your Honor, I, I always try to uh, uh, get from the couples like, why? Of, of the billion people out there, why is this the one you think you're supposed to build a life with? What was it about, Kim, that made you say, this is this is the one God intended for me? Oh, there's so many things. that. So, Kim, I mean, she's amazing in so many ways, but the thing that's incredible about her is just she's got this resolve about her and this steadiness that when I met her and dated her, I not only knew she was perfect for me, I knew she was going to be the perfect mother for our children. Uh -huh. And it's funny because Kim brought me into the Catholic church, right? She knew she let me figure it out myself, mm. but she knew the journey was one that I had to embark on. And it was funny because we had our first kid and she said he's getting baptized you realize that and i said of course honey he's whatever you say which is i've learned is a good saying <laughs> um and then she was pregnant immediately with our daughter and she said to me now look i want to explain something to you every sunday we're going to go to church uh monday through saturday this family is going to be catholic you can be a part of it or not you need <laughs> to figure it out and so I went into RCIA and I challenged everything. I mean, I found articles, any article I could find critical of the Catholic Church. And I, I'm telling you, there, there were 15 of us with our sponsors and everyone knew it was going to be a raucous meeting, every meeting, because I was going to make it that way. That's a lawyer in me, right? <laughs> and we, all of us are very close to this day mm -hmm. that went through that because we really work through it in a way together. They help me, but I think I help them by challenging some things they would have just taken for granted and really working through it. And now I don't know if you've heard, I'm doing this thing called uh, a ca the catechism in a year. So Father Mike, 
Schmitz does it. Sure, sure. And you listen every day. And he's really amazing. And I hope people that listen to this will get the podcast and get, because I think it's really helped me again. Because for a while, as a Catholic, I hopefully live it seven days a week. And and we go to church, but sometimes you can go through the motions. And I wasn't really studying the faith. And I think... I've read the catechism before, but I'll be honest with you, a lot, a lot of the parts of it I don't understand. And Father Mike has really taken it. It's kind of like interpreting the law. Like what I hope I did in the people's justice is I hope I took the law and made it understandable for lay and ordinary people. And I think mm-hmm. that's what Father Mike's doing for me with the catechism. Yes. Well, related to that, the people's justice, among other things, is great. I, I'm, I recall back in seminary that we would study philosophy, and I'd read the original and and have to read it ten times. And then I found this book by Bertrand Russell called The History of Western Philosophy, and ah, now I get what the philosopher was saying. I feel the same way with the way you write, and I'm wondering where. You almost write like a good journalist. You write with a clarity that anyone picking up the people's justice will understand what you're trying to say and and. The clarity is unusual. Let's be honest. For uh, most people who sit on the bench, one of my nephews is a lawyer. Said we all love Justice Scalia because he was an interesting writer. You are that interesting writer, and more importantly, clear for anyone who picks up the book. Where does that gift come from? Yeah, I think it comes from being a trial lawyer. I was a federal uh, prosecutor for a while, and I had to take complex. The best trial lawyers take complex legal concepts and other things. They explain it to juries yes. in a way they can understand. And I think I had two, go- three goals with this book. One, first and foremost, to explain Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. In most instances, when important through his own words. Mm. The second was to make it an interesting read, to write it in a way that didn't just tell the reader what to think, but rather let them form their own conclusions by reading the stories of the real people that come in front of the court and seeing how the justice, how he reacted to those real life stories. And the third was to make it accessible to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I hope I accomplished all those things. I think one thing people will be surprised is how easy it is to go through and understand the legal concepts in the way they're explained. And one way I tested it out is I had a high schooler and I'd have him read some of the chapters as I drafted them and ask me <laughs> questions like, where don't you understand? And he really, it was interesting to watch him grasp the things and then show me where there were holes. And so that was part of it that was really a good thing to have. <laughs> yeah. Judge, you know, uh, one of the, the things that you say in the book, and again, back to your dedication, is that you and Kim have been blessed with God's grace to bring into the world these uh, three amazing children as you define them. I mention that because a lot of parents and grandparents watch and listen to a program like this, and they share with me time and time again their frustration at what's the best way to teach and uh, to implant in our children the values that mean the most to us. Have, have you and Kim, as parents, figured out, is there a particular right or wrong way to do that? I don't know that there's a right or wrong way, but the one thing that really worked for us is being consistent Mm -hmm. in other words working together not disagreeing and to me you have to be grounded in something and for us the faith was the best way our kids i'm so proud where i like to say wear the cross on the outside not the inside they don't Mm -hmm. hide their faith they don't hide what they believe that's a tribute to my wife but 
I admire them so much for it because it's so much easier for us people my age than maybe people their age where it's not as common, sadly. But I can tell you at the end of the day, if that's your center of your universe, it makes everything else easier. And I've just really found that that grounding, I don't know how people do it. I would struggle without having that constant in their lives, that moral compass that comes from outside of Kim and I, it comes from something much more important and much higher. And I think it's starting at the very beginning from when, you know, they were babies and never stopping is really, really important. And the one thing I will say is when we moved back here to Kentucky, I wasn't thrilled with the prospect. It was my wife's decision. You'll you'll see a common theme in my life, which is everyone knows who's the (laughs) boss in our family. (laughs) But I will say that it was really rewarding to have my kids, my kids went to Catholic schools and have mm-hmm. their faith reinforced by their friends, by the families they hung out with. Not everyone's Catholic, but I felt like they all reinforced the importance of God being at the center of their lives. Please stay with us. We'll be back with more of our interview with Judge Amal War in just a moment. from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and I, the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, joined once again by Judge Amalta Parr, whose new book examines the true character of Justice Clarence Thomas. The book is called The People's Justice. I need to ask you, too, because it's such a good book that gives such insight into the man, the person of Justice Clarence Thomas. What's the background of the relationship that you have with him? You know, I've only met him a few times. And Mm -hmm. one thing even his critics will tell you is if they've met him, and spend five minutes with him, they walk away blown away. So, for example, I went at 25 years. I tell the story pretty often because I think it's so remarkable because I saw firsthand at 25 years, Yale Law School had a ceremony honoring Justice Thomas. And I went to the ceremony and it was great. And I moderated the panel on his jurisprudence. And we had a lot of fun. Uh The justice was grudgingly there being honored. He doesn't like being honored. He didn't want anything to do with that. But afterwards, they had a reception. And at the reception were all the professors who were both his fans and his critics and, you know, students both ways. He spent half the reception with the support staff, talking to them, engaging with them. I I watched him and he never looks over anyone's shoulder. If you're the person he's talking to, you are the most important person in the world. And he makes you feel that way. Then when we were done, we had to escort him to dinner, a private dinner. And 
we were 30 minutes late. You want to know why we were 30 minutes late? He stayed and thanked every one of the support staff and took pictures with anyone that wanted it, went into the kitchen and thanked the people who made the food. I mean, this man's in that regard. I, I just can't say enough good things about Clarence Thomas, the person, but I've only met him a few times, but I think everyone that's met him. And, you know, every time I go talk about this book, the other day I was talking about this book and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, uh, Justice Thomas and I go to church together and another woman was sick and he he always noticed that we sat together and he had only met her a couple times, but he asked one day when she wasn't there where she was. And I told him she was in the hospital sick and that day she got flowers from Justice Thomas. <laughs> That's a side of him we would never know, Judge. So thank you for that. I promise you I'm going to wrap it, but let me just talk one more thing about the people's justice. Um you know, and I know that there are people out there who will never like him because he doesn't vote the way they like. Do you have any sense from people who know him? Uh, is he a guy who holds a grudge or is he pretty much you are, as you are open to the fact that we may disagree, but I will never be disagreeable. And I will never personally have animosity toward you because we're not on the same page. Yeah, he's definitely that way. I mean, yeah. he, I, I can't sense a, a bone of animosity in him. I think, you know, Justice Breyer, who disagreed with him pretty often mm -hmm. when new when new criticisms of Justice Thomas came, he said two things. He said, I sat next to him for 28 years. He's a man of integrity. I've never seen him or heard him do anything underhanded or wow. say anything underhanded. And Justice Sotomayor, as I recount in the book, say he's yes. a man that cares deeply about people and the institution and that he's the one person in the building that knows everyone's name. So I would say that he has great relationships with everyone he meets. And I hope with this book, people will not only read it, but give it to the critics, give it to their friends mm -hmm. who are critics, because everyone's got a friend that's a critic of Justice right. Thomas <laughs> and let them read it and see where do we agree? You know, do you agree with him on some of this stuff? Had you known the real story? Would you really buy into that he's pro-corporation or pro-big guy or pro-rich over the poor? Or would you understand that he's just doing his best to interpret the law? And often it's surprising who that favors when the real stories are told. I want to thank you for being with us, Judge. And I, I hope that our viewers and listeners will get a hold of the book, The People's Justice. It gave me a whole new insight into the man. I was kind of a fan anyway, but I, I've understood the criticism of Justice Thomas and uh, I'm I'm. I'm just thinking it will open a lot of minds, a lot of hearts, uh, both to what originalism is, as well as to the kindness and the man behind the image. I think you've done a great service for the courts and certainly for Justice Thomas. And, and I thank you. you. You are immensely clear. And we really need that to understand better the court system. Judge, thank you so much. And please tell uh, Kim uh, she, she's always right. And yeah. uh, <laughs> she knows that. <laughs> Happy wife, happy life. Judge, thanks so That's much right. for being with us on the program and, and much good success to you with the book and with the, the, the difference you can make for so many people and better understanding of what's going on in our country. You're a great gift to us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. God bless you. And uh, I hope the listeners enjoy the book and I'd be happy to come back anytime. I Thank you. And I've already ordered a bunch for all my nieces and nephews. So the book's going to sell well, I promise. Thank you, Judge. Thanks. Bye. As we end today's program, if you'd like to reach out to me for any reason, you can get me at personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. Aside from listening to us on SiriusXM, the Catholic channel, you can also watch us on YouTube by going to Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Please hit like and subscribe. 
We're also, as you probably know, on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Osanti. And now we're also on Instagram at Personally Speaking Podcast. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer, Personally Speaking. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.